Hello, welcome to this episode of this podcast series where, where each episode covers a chapter of my recently published book, Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organisations. This time I'll be talking about chapter nine of the book, which deals with sense-making. I said in the overview episode that sense-making was perhaps a little bit of an, of an indulgence because it's something I'd written about before or read about before, and I felt that it could be applied more to diversity. But the link isn't immediately obvious, and so I spend some of this chapter looking at how it's a little bit underexplored Sense-making is also not an easy thing to, to, to offer a straightforward definition of um, because we could simply call it interpretation, making sure that things seem to make sense to us, giving some order or organising to what's going on around us and making it seem meaningful in our own terms. But some some people might take issue with that because... Sense-making can't necessarily just be reduced to interpretation. It's an ongoing process where we actually actively shape our environment based on what we think is going on, and then we have to notice and maybe reassess what, what our actions are doing to our environment and what's unfolding around us. As with some of the other chapters of the book and some of the other episodes of this podcast, I think you can question the criticality of sense making. A lot of sense making is based around psychology. It's it's not especially politicized. It doesn't have a an over political project. It doesn't start from a place of dealing with inequality or oppression. But it is very versatile, and I think people are starting to link it up with some of the critical areas I've discussed elsewhere, things like power uh, and politics and emotions. Um, and I, in this chapter, look in particular mm -hmm. at connecting it with diversity. Before I start talking about diversity, I go back to Carl Wyke, and anyone who's ever looked at sense-making in organisations will probably know a fair bit about Carl Wyke and be very aware of him as a key figure who's established sense-making. It's hard to overstate his importance and influence here. Um, and sense-making has sort of in the last 30 years become a classic organisational theory or a sort of essential foundation of how we could look at organisations, along with maybe cultural theories, institutional theories and contingency theories that sort of explain the structure and processes of organisation. And I go back and I talk a little bit about White, Carl Wyke's 1995 book, Sense Making in Organisations, pretty much a, a crucial introductory text about a sense-making perspective. Again, sense-making, not quite a theory. Um, it's it's perhaps bigger than a theory, it's a perspective. It's a sort of philosophical way of looking at how organisations happen around us. How, or, or Carl White would prefer we use the verb organising. How does organising activity take place? What does that feel like? And although not all 
work since has has um reinforced uh the 1995 book in all ways i find it quite interesting to recall that this book in this book carl wyke outlines seven principles of sense making and i won't go over them all in detail but i'll just rattle them off fairly briefly here so number one is identity sense making is about identity number two is retrospection some people have played around with this a little bit since but there was an initial principle here that sense making was retrospective it was what just happened what did i do what did i say what did that mean something's just happened to me and what's going on and we're always looking back almost on what happened a moment ago but some people have adjusted that i think in their own developments of this and they've talked about prospective sense making and the future as well um but sense making always has a link to what seems to have just happened and how we our interpretation tries to make meaning and catch up number three is enactment and that's quite an important part of the active element of sense making we shape our environments by acting in situations and telling stories we actually shape what the meaning will be we contribute and feed into that and feed off of that Number four is social. Sense making is social. We don't make sense of our actions and perceptions in a vacuum. We interact with others and share what we think is going on, and then they respond and we respond to their response. So it's very much about interactions and social relationships. Number five, it's ongoing. Sense making never really explicitly has a beginning or end point. So we're constantly trying to understand what's going on in our lives and our experiences but that never really stops there's always new things happening or new information to process number six is cue extraction the idea that we extract some information that strikes as more as more important or relevant than others we fix upon particular cues or details to kind of put together a sense of what's going on. You could call them clues as well, I think, not just cues, but we take our cue from certain bits and pieces of information, certain ideas and associations. And finally, number seven, which you could argue is problematic for diversity in some ways, we tend to favour plausibility over accuracy. So we're not always able, we don't feel we can get into all the details of whether or not our interpretation is accurate we tend to just think is it plausible so if something seems engaging or coherent and things are changing anyway we may prefer what is easy to understand or something we can rationalize as reasonable rather than insisting on accuracy and truth at all times and I also note that, that, you know, again, these principles aren't normative, they're descriptive. So we could be planning a murder uh, and we would still be engaging in sense making, or we could be planning world peace and engaging in sense making. The normative nature of the sense making project is not really commented on as part of this set of principles or perspective. And the thing that's most surprising is Carl Wyke really doesn't mention diversity much at all. And I do still find this surprising, even though it's maybe not an explicit purpose of 
of all organization theory that uh, in a, in a book length treatment he doesn't really get into diversity at all there is a point near the end of the book where he actually quotes a literary writer the mexican writer carlos fuentes and talks about how one of the key sense making challenges is to 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 reconcile diversity and unity because if we can't reconcile diversity and unity then the world will seem a bit meaningless it it, it won't quite make sense the way it, it should be and i would say you know a world that has too much diversity or too little diversity may be at risk as being seen as something that doesn't really seem to make sense and Wykes has set the tone here for 20 years or more of research that has come since, all about these processes of interpretation, often prompted by when we encounter conflict or a discrepancy or something that seems surprising and doesn't fit with our past experience. And that could be include our own reactions to things, things that, that we do ourselves, and then we're forced to confront our environment and to try and find some new way of of revisiting what it means to us. And that's organising. It's connecting the dots. It's extracting an interpretation. It's acting on that interpretation and seeing what happens. So it's very versatile. It's very philosophical. And people have, in the last five years or so, in reviewing sense making, noted that it potentially has blind spots. It doesn't really seem to talk about power or politics. It doesn't always talk about uh, some of the other chapters of, of, of my book. It doesn't always talk about discourse. It doesn't always talk about uh, communication or ideology or, or, or any of those things, really. Um, it's very much about social interactions, it's about cognition and information processing and performance, coordinated performance. But um, maybe we need to go beyond Wyke and look at other research to elaborate connections with diversity. And that's what I do in the rest of this chapter. And there is research there, but I try to gather it together more than I've seen it done before and to thematize some of it uh, and argue it a little bit more explicitly. So there has been work on uh, groups and organisations who are told to value diversity, for example. But you can't just va- go around valuing diversity uh, a priori. That doesn't really make much sense, funnily enough. Um, but what we do find is that people come to their own understandings of what valuing diversity might look like. They might need to work through conflict to to get there they might need to learn from other people form friendships notice similarities and differences between ourselves and other people and we're trying to anticipate these different meanings and identities that are that are going on around us we're trying to make sense of them now of course excluding people and discriminating against them is still a form of sense making and so organizations could be religious organizations it could be sports organizations or any organization with a strong culture may that may that strong culture may be its basis for making sense of the world and part of that sense making may be um, 
that differences are something to be excluded and something to be controlled. But as the context shifts, there's this prompt or provocation, if you like, to or this need to adapt our sense-making, to sort of enter into dialogue. You could take the previous episode of this podcast around multiculturalism and say, if we interact within a multicultural organization, we have to make sense of what multiculturalism can really mean, how it will include majority and minority cooperation across differences. And we look at our expectations and our contributions to that sense-making of something like multiculturalism. And wherever there's injustice or inequity, that will also require some sort of interpretation. And that can then become a more critical form of sense-making when we look at questioning rules, questioning power, questioning discourse around gender or other forms of difference. If there's some sort of discrepancy, then there's maybe a drive to question or notice that discrepancy and maybe behave or ask questions about it in a slightly different way. Of course, as, I keep, as I've said a couple of times now, this could be rationalisation. So it could be that you don't feel it makes sense to call something an injustice or that you use different language or give a different response to the same representation of the same events. So some researchers looked at language and how people with different group memberships use different kinds of, of language and they may or may not mention words like justice as part of their sense-making of a piece of discrimination or some sort of treatment of uh, diverse parties in an organisational culture. And sense-making is often not always, uh, but can be manifested in language and in narrative as well. So if you look at company reports uh, uh, and things like that, you'll see how companies impose order on their strategy, um, their strategic change, how they deal with diversity in their organisation. It might be that they use certain conceptions of um, minority work patterns or schema and again, sense-making has to deal with competing ways of looking at things and compete things that compete for our attention. How do we understand gender differences in the organisation? How do we understand career choices? How do we make sense of those things? Another area is bullying, uh, and perhaps because bullying can be such a, a shocking and conflicting situation where you have different parties feeding into the situation giving different accounts of of what's been happening and bullying often involving a, a diversity dimension this is where there's been some powerful research of people giving accounts of their experiences as a victim of bullying and how that's affected how they behave and make sense of future situations. They may be less willing to trust their colleagues, for example, or they may experience different emotions 
in response to particular cues or particular events. And sometimes, weirdly, the sense of a situation can can really escalate. People can commit to a certain reality and they can escalate the situation. It might be that there are bystanders and multiple perpetrators of bullying and they that 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 some sort of conflict escalates in the situation and that can be difficult to question or grasp in the moment while it's happening. People may rationalize it afterwards as well. They may deny that what happened was was bullying or not recognize um, people's descriptions of their actions um, and it's only when people are challenged repeatedly to sort of explain and interpret things in a different way that you can actually shift sense making and this is why it's powerful to listen to different stories of the same events because people make sense of them in different ways you can notice and that's where a lot of the sense making research looks at eyewitness accounts or it looks at um you know very uh, um vivid accounts of events that have unfolded in organizations people have different stories they have different schemas they have different interpretations people come from different positions they talk about events that have unfolded and the circumstances that have led them to a particular sequence of actions of course, ethnic minorities and other minorities in organisations may face additional challenges because they're trying to make sense of a sense of disadvantage and discrimination. And they may attribute that to various causes or they may have a struggle to actually break the dominant narratives in the organisation. And that's what some of the recent research, and there's a few papers that do actually link diversity management to sense-making. And what we find is that there are competing narratives. There's often a dominant narrative that says, if we manage diversity, it will be good for the business. The business will perform better and there'll be improvements. But then there are also other narratives which aren't always being articulated and acted on. It might be that there are some tensions around diversity management, that performance isn't improving all the time and at all levels. There may even be, uh, may well be, a perpetuation of a hierarchical sense of inequalities across different groups. It might be that at a structural level, for some minorities, nothing really changes. They still occupy low status positions. But that may not be compatible with the sense of the dominant narrative. So studies have been relatively limited to date that explicitly link diversity and sense-making. But I go on in this chapter to link a few other themes that have been covered indirectly in the sense-making literature. I think they indirectly have, have a link with diversity. The first one is crisis and change. Anyone who's looked at the sense-making literature will know that a lot of it is about how changing events unfold or how a crisis disrupts our usual way of making sense of our environment and demands that we adapt uh, or, 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 or the crisis will get worse. And I think this is an interesting idea for diversity that something unexpected happens, whether it's injustice, 
a sense of discrimination or harassment. Companies may face lawsuits and have to make sense of their own actions and positions in, in those types of circumstances. I even draw on the example of flight attendants, which can be a highly gendered and feminised role, and they play quite a unique sense-making role in aircraft during in-flight emergencies. So the gendered nature of a flight attendant in a crisis is, um, as any Hollywood movie will potentially show you, is that their, their role is to communicate with passengers, maybe other members of the crew, to make sense of um, the service on the aircraft, the safety, the emotions people may be feeling and reassuring them. There's also studies on transport accidents and terrorist incidents which link crisis and sense-making. And sometimes there is a diversity angle which isn't often especially brought out. But if you think of, for example, the mistaken 2005 shooting by police of Jean Charles de Menezes uh, in a London tube station, that in part was due to an emotional build-up under pressure um, that led to this making sense of somebody's ethnicity matching that of a terrorist target and therefore we should commit to the idea that this person has to be a terrorist target. They're the only possible person um, and we have to neutralise that threat. So again, often looking at inquiries into these events where in, there's been a crisis unfolding and interpretations are shifting around the role of majority and minority actors in those circumstances. A study uh, by Andrew Brown of the British Arms to Iraq affair and the Iraq war looked at how politicians and other actors involved in organisations in this, this situation were willfully deceiving themselves. They were engaging in hypocrisy and scapegoating to make sense of military and defence exchanges between Britain and Iraq. And we could apply this also to crises to do with immigration, refugees, sexual harassment. There may be some sort of moral panic going on where certain interpretations are gaining ground and people are committing to them, but also escalating senses of scandal the media may be feeding into that. Uh, Organisations may be weighing in with their narratives of who the victims and perpetrators are. And the crisis, of course, may deepen or, or take a troubling turn. A lot of that can be underpinned by sense-making. Sense-making can go in all sorts of directions. As I've said, it's not necessarily normative in in any one sense so sense making can be ethical as well we can mobilize sense making to look at poverty and inequality in the world to try and imagine a better world where we solve social problems and we reason morally about a crisis in a way that we perhaps have not done in the past we've maybe used faulty or incomplete interpretations in the past and there might be a way of imagining alternatives but we then have to challenge those other interpretation interpretations whenever we are leading or managing change in organizations 
we're trying to make sense of the experience of that change and what how our own actions are con- contributing to it. And this may lead to the scapegoating of minority outgroups or people with different value systems. There may be an overcommitment to top-down self-serving kind of sense-making communications and interpretations. And then there'll be a corresponding bottom-up sense-making from people with less power but maybe still expressing their own sense of the situation. So studies of women's groups and networks find that they use their relationships, their storytelling, to make sense of their version of, of, of a restructuring change at a global corporation. And they can use that as a resource to give support, advice and problem solving amongst themselves. People make sense of their careers as well, and that includes people from diverse groups. So women make sense of barriers in their careers and what to do about those barriers and how they should act and perceive those barriers. Careers often cross paths not just with gender, of course, but also with age. And retirement is another key decision-making arena where sense-making plays a role. People need to think about how they want to make sense of their lives in terms of work and non-work aspects and the timing of their retirement decision and the meaning of their retirement decision. Maternity uh, and and becoming a a mother or a parent is another trigger for sense-making and there is some research on that as well. And it tends to be that People are looking around for a sort of interpretation that they might choose or which might give them guidance um, around how to describe what's going on in their lives and to give them a sense of identity and a sense of what to do because they might be feeling shocked. And I think there is scope to do more here with sense-making and identity when we talk about promotions, becoming a parent, relocating, maybe becoming ill at work in some quite disruptive and challenging way. So I talk about crisis and change. I think that sense-making research is, as I've been describing it here, it's still a lot of it's about psychology. It's about individuals. It isn't especially critical in terms of power structures and politics always, but I think there is potential in deepening Um, this look at how minorities and majorities experience diversity, crisis and change. I go on to also look at sense-making and learning and how learning and sense-making have a link with diversity here. Learning is often positioned a little bit as the opposite of sense-making because sense-making reduces it It latches onto a particular interpretation of a situation, whereas learning is opening us up to alternative ways of being and acting and interpreting. And I think there is a regrettable lack of research that brings learning, diversity and sense-making together, even though it's often what managers are trying to do. They're trying to take action, make judgments and maybe reflect on 
how their own sense-making is unfolding. It's not totally dissimilar from a form of mindfulness in how we organise our own experiences. Anyone who is a newcomer to an organisation, and of course that could be somebody from a minority background, they have to learn the ropes. They have to make sense of what it means to be a member, an employee of that organisation. And cultural minorities and majorities will use sense-making in these kinds of encounters to develop their identities. Whenever they encounter an unfamiliar or uncertain situation, they will hopefully become aware of that and find some way of meaningfully integrating it. So there's some sort of shock to various people in the organisation and the question is how do they then learn from that shock and make sense of it and is it serving um, other purposes and other narratives? So as we encounter cultural diversity, we encounter different values and, and they will require sense-making to sort of navigate those values. If we go on into cultural training, we would expect that to engage sense-making capabilities. And obviously expatriates, students working with diverse others, they are practising their sense-making skills as to whether they can break out of some of their culture-specific structures and practices. And we may like and dislike aspects of what we learn, and it may place a strain on our sense-making capacity. I actually, relatively unusually in the book as a whole, but I, I pick up on the example here of generational diversity, because as older and younger generations try to learn about each other, they struggle to make sense of how to how to categorize each other so the the very category of calling an employee a millennial is not an especially clear category but it does reflect a way of trying to make sense of what the younger generation at work wants or how they might need to be managed and what is the stereotype of that generation and how do we then act when we're talking about millennials or baby boomers at work and so learning kind of shakes up our sense-making. And we need to do it socially. We need to learn together maybe as a system. And I think there's, uh, there's more, more to be sort of explored there around how we learn to solve problems together with diverse views that challenge our pre-existing views. And there is some research on multi-stakeholder dialogues. And sense-making can get very messy when we're talking about social justice or social responsibility. And that moves me on to the latter part of this chapter before I conclude, where I, I talk a little bit more about developing and fostering more critical approaches to sense-making. Because some of the things I've been discussing have been very mild in some ways. They just say, well, you know, sense-making happens, it's quite difficult, everybody has to try and do it, but we don't always do it. Uh, in, a, in a particularly redemptive or morally edifying way we just try and interpret what's going on and we face dilemmas about how to how to act on that there are some people who are starting to tackle the 
idea that sense making can be a bit more critical. They're trying to tackle it a bit more head on. So I talk about Sally Maitlis and Christiansen's review where they talk a lot about different types of sense making. It can be cultural or political or environmental. And they also play around a little bit with the language of sense making. And there are many variant terms here. There are some neologisms, if you like, around different verbs. So people have talked occasionally, although less prominently, around things like sense giving. So giving an interpretation either through leadership or communication. Sense hiding, so trying to cover up certain interpretations and sense exchanging although these terms haven't quite caught on to the same extent as this central idea of sense making itself there's also the critical paradox of sense making and that if we're all doing it all the time then it's impossible to kind of be totally objective about it and that isn't particularly surprising but we are sort of pretending that we're being objective about what is inherently subjective. So some authors have said it's really important when you're doing sense-making to always participate with lots of other people um, so that you invite lots of different types of sense-making as part of the research and practice. You can also engage in the more postmodern practice of deconstruction and try to deconstruct your own sense-making. And some autobiographical, autoethnographic research has perhaps been more effective at that. But it is a, it is a problem, is how to be critical about sense-making also necessitates being critical about your own sense-making, if you can get your head around that, and perhaps um, including contrasting forms of sense-making in the same account. Albert and Jean Helm Mills have developed a more critical approach to sense-making, but it remains relatively underutilised, and I express my regret about that in the book and would encourage people to go and read Albert and Jean Helm Mills' work because they talk a bit more about how sense-making takes place in contexts of power relationship and social change. And there are psychological processes here, but they're operating as they underlie social structures. Another way is just to look more closely at the process of sense-making and how contested and difficult it can be, why we really do struggle to put things into clear interpretations, why we sometimes make things worse or we get confused or we seem to latch on to convenient rationalizations rather than more inclusive adaptive accounts some people have also said it's not just about the key the key people in roles sense making is quite distributed across a network and that's also includes not just human beings but technology time and other other aspects of the situation there's also scope to talk critically about sense-making in relation to our own bodies and emotions because those are powerful things that we often struggle to make sense of in language. And there's a bit of a lack of bridging here, I think, with areas like gender and disability and scope to build research and practice on these aspects. So you can zoom in on sense-making as a very intimate 
experience. And you can also zoom out to consider how it happens across networks and structures in pursuit of of ethical and social change, potentially. So in our societies, there are clearly bigger sense-making structures at play, some of which I covered in earlier episodes. You've got institutional and historical schema. So when people are nostalgic about the nation-state or when they engage in conspiracy theories, they probably are drawing on wider power structures that inform their sense-making there, and that's been a little bit neglected. There's some research on ethical sense-making and sense-making in social responsibility contexts that could also be developed and has only started to emerge in the last 10 years or so. And we see people judging ethical issues in different ways, resorting to different sense-making justifications for the way they've acted on and interpreted events. I think one problem here is sense-making hasn't always embraced methodological commitments consistently and so a lot of the work is fairly general and conceptual rather than relating it to concrete situations um, that relate to a variety of organizational issues part of it is white the white tradition of Carl white's approach to looking at case studies of crisis and change But the question for me in this chapter and this podcast is how do we renew sense-making to take a more critical focus on diversity and equality, inequality as well? We do need to consider the other chapters of this book and the episodes of this podcast. If we're going to talk about sense-making, we probably do need to talk about power. We do need to talk about institutional structures to a degree to get a fuller picture of what is going on if people are blaming or scapegoating certain groups or individuals in terms you know why is that happening why why is sense making operating that way in terms of the power and responsibility dynamics that pass between stakeholders and other structures because when you're talking about sense making you are talking about knowledge and action and those things are intimately bound up with power And so we come back to other critical theorists I've discussed elsewhere. So I think there's a lot to do, but there are clues all over the existing sense-making literature about how people engage in sense-making across different social positions in the organisation, different levels of the hierarchy, and they maybe try and influence and resist particular events or narratives Um, particularly in struggles for strategic change and organisational change. And I do look at papers in the last few years that are starting to open up these agendas, but I don't think we've quite yet seen much empirical work. We've just seen editorials and reviews a lot in the last few years. So in conclusion, sense-making clearly has certain strengths and weaknesses as as a critical perspective. I believe if you use it in a in a reflexive, open-ended and self-critical way, you can link it up to diversity and the struggles that go on in organisations for interpretation and meaning, which is really very much what organise, organising is about. 
There are lots of links to diversity in a way, but they're infrequent and underdeveloped in existing organisational research. I think you could argue it's desirable that sense-making stay at a psychological level, but then you combine it with other perspectives to fill in some of the issues around oppressive structures. Maybe this is where sense-making is most helpful. It looks at social and psychological dynamics that run alongside or in, in conjunction with wider social power structures. And undoubtedly, sense-making, it will change your way of looking at the world, I think. Even things like saying, don't use the noun organisation, let's focus a lot more on the verb organising. And again, that itself implies, at its best, that we can work with difference, we can work with diversity in an ongoing way as we try to make sense of it through participatory relations, dialogues, and simply just trying to anticipate how our own knowledge and our own activities and actions are transformed through encounters with diverse others. So it is existential. It is about the the reactions we have to each other emotionally and ethically. And I think there's still potential to explore sense-making in conjunction with diversity and diversity management in this way. And so I conclude at the very end of this chapter by saying that sense-making has these social and symbolic dimensions as we try to pursue common meanings and understandings of, situ of shared situations, however elusive that may seem when, when there's polarisation and conflict going on. But I think to date, diversity deserves a more prominent place in sense-making debate. Because I think differences and diversity are a huge catalyst and site for where we do a lot of sense-making. We do that social symbolic work of trying to sort through narratives, meanings and understandings of our own actions and interactions. And I conclude that our experiences of difference and diversity are what give rise to our sense of, of diversity. So that's it for this episode, and I'll be back next next time talking about Chapter 10, which looks at place, space, and geography in relation to diversity and organisations as another way of elaborating a critical perspective. Thank you. <laughs>